You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. In this special episode, Future Net Zero founder Sumit Bose speaks with Jonathan Porritt. He is the co-founder of Forum for the Future and has been spearheading the green movement since 1974. He has just published his latest book, Hope in Hell, in which he states that we have one decade to save the planet. He discussed his thoughts on how we can get to net zero in this podcast. Jonathan Porritt, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you're well, first of all. Yes, pretty good, thank you. Um, Week 19 of the lockdown, so I don't know how much longer to go. (laughs) It's absolutely true. Uh, What I'd like to just start by talking about in in simple terms is, um, why did you get involved in the group movement to begin with? What, what, What triggered you as a young person? I joined the Green Party in 1974, so that is a long time ago. And honestly, what got me involved was reading a number of books around at that time. There was a brilliant little book called Blueprint for Survival that just said um, human numbers are growing all the time. The global economy is growing all the time. The planet is staying the same size, so this doesn't really add up. It was completely compelling as far as I was concerned. Limits to growth, small is beautiful, all of these books made me think oh god this is really bad so i got involved in the early 70s and i've kind of stuck with it since then but as a young person i don't know your your background but did you were you always sort of into that sort of thing was it something your parents put into you looking at the countryside or was it just simply a no, moment really. of literature that triggered you yeah i mean i was i spent quite a bit of time in my late teens living out in new zealand and australia and i did a lot of work on on farms and tree planting and stuff like that. So I kind of got connected to the land uh, relatively early on, but I didn't have a radical bone in my body until I um, left university. And then then things kind of kicked in and I began to think, this is not smart. We need to get this sorted as soon as possible. And I really thought in those days that we could get it sorted really quickly. (laughs) And you're still at it. Still at it, yep. <laughs> if you look back at that time, the reason I want to talk about it, because I, I feel that we've reached a time where maybe we're not as radical, because, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s and we had loads of marches, there was polarisation, which sadly I feel is happening again in politics. But you, you look back at the 70s and the 60s, and definitely it was a time for students to act. It was a yeah. time for young people to be sort of rebellious. And that seemed to have died away. Um, before we talk about today... Why do you think that was? Why were, why were people like you getting involved when, frankly, the country in the, in the, in the early 70s was trying to recover economically? It had a, a black hole of finances. It was, the, as they called, the sick man of Europe. There were strikes, all of that. Why do you think things like environmentalism, Greenpeace, later uh, CND, took hold in that climate? Yeah. Yeah, I think in a way, the, you know, it's funny to look back on it, but the global economy was doing pretty well then. This was uh, the time when a version of Keynesianism was still allowed to thrive and prosper. So by and large, people saw their living standards improve year on year. Young people felt there was an expectation that that was how they would have to live their lives. And, And it was actually coming out of a sense of the complacency of society at that time that young people's protests became so vociferous and so active in everybody's lives. Um, 
it's ironic now that after nearly 40 years of a very different version of capitalism, a sort of particularly, in my opinion, a particularly uh, vicious form of extractive neoliberal capitalism, that young people find it much harder to get involved in the protest movement. I'm very involved in higher education. I'm Chancellor of Keele University, and I look at what's happening to our young students, most of whom are carrying this expectation of debt for however long it takes them to pay off their debt. And they're just very constrained when it comes to what they feel they can do by way of political action and involvement, very different from the 70s and 80s, as you said. When you look at what's happened, has the Green Movement been successful over the last 40 years? <laughs> Are you suggesting to me that I have entirely wasted my life? Or... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's been successful in some things. And, and people forget that some of the campaigns that environmentalists have uh, led over the years have been very successful. I mean, I could talk now about acid rain, for instance, and nobody, very few people listening to this conversation would actually know what acid rain was. because Sadly, I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a successful campaign. Yes. So lots of things that would have been even worse have been stopped or slowed down or improved. There's no question about that. And from that perspective, you could say that the environment movement has really done a good job. It promoted better standards, it's improved water quality, it's allowed for the EU directives to become much more influential in this country, all of those things. But if you ask me, have we really shifted the needle on the kind of economy we need to protect the natural world as well as to create prosperity? I have to say the answer to that is no. In right. fact, painfully, people are as obsessed with economic growth at all costs today, just as obsessed as they were in the 70s and 80s. So we haven't made any dent at all in that promotion of growth at all costs. And that, of course, is the source of so many of the problems we face. If we look at where we are now, and, and you look at what's been happening over the last, say, decade and a half, let's go back. Um, I, I would say that the economic shock of 08, 09, and even the build-up to that, you know, you, you could definitely say there was a build-up of consumerism, consumerism, global expansion, and lots of good things, you know, lots mm. of access for people. My, my family in India, I say the story all the time, in 1980, they boiled their water, you know, when mm. we visited them in 2016, they've got a water filter, they've got air conditioning, the mosquitoes are far less, there are lots better yeah. things that are happening to improve their lifestyle. But that came at a cost of consuming, and, and consuming very unabated. We then had the economic shock I and mean, everyone thought that might be a, a bit of a reset, but we just built back even more. Yeah. Why do you think that was, if you, as you say, we've seen some successes, that polit is it to do with political will or is it to do with simply business overpowering the, the, the good intentions of many politicians to say, do you know what, if you want the economy to run, you've got to expand. There's plenty of evidence that shows that historically businesses have effectively lobbied politicians to enable them to be as profitable as possible. I mean, there's no, there's no shortage of evidence about highly effective corporate lobbying to make that the, the outcome. 
And from that perspective, I guess politicians have been less inclined to do things that seem to act against the interests of corporates in that way. But what is particularly interesting right now, when you look at something like climate change, is that pretty much every progressive company around the world, and some very unprogressive companies, are now very actively involved lobbying governments to get their act sorted on accelerated decarbonization programs. And that's a remarkable shift around. If you go back to the period of time in the run-up to the crash, as you, as you said to me, in 2008, 2009, yeah, there were some companies that were very concerned about climate change, but their voice wasn't heard particularly strongly. You didn't get a great wave of business anxiety about governments neglecting their responsibilities on climate. Now, you think about the contribution of business to the 2015 Paris Summit, you think about all the initiatives underway right now, business-led initiatives to do far more to accelerate decarbonization programs. It's a totally different, it is a totally different world. I'm, I, I don't want to paint business as always doing the right thing, because in many, many other instances, they don't. And if you think about the way in which they've opposed better regulation about things like plastic and waste and so on, have been very slow to embrace some of the more environmentally efficient ways of creating wealth that we have, yeah, there's a big charge sheet that business still has to answer to. But let's pay tribute to the leadership we're getting from business now on climate, because that leaves politicians with nowhere to hide, frankly. You've got civil society, academia, business, the world's faith groups now all saying, for God's sake, get on and do it. Stop messing around. Do it in the way that we know it now has to be done. Yeah, and I think that's the point. I mean, th this platform, Future Net Zero, is all about, you know, it's a simple tagline, better business leads to better planet, because I don't believe personally that denying people will get you there. You just got to give them the products that are cleaner. You've got to make sure that the wood they get is more sustainable, that they can drink clean water that's not got loads of chemicals in it, all of those things. Am I being naive to think that that is a good motivator as someone who spent decades working with business and I, you, you said to me before we did the recording you're not anti-business no not at all but no. i feel that this might be a time where actually they see this as an opportunity what, what's your view yeah <laughs> the silence says it all I'm a little bit ambivalent about that because what, one thing we've learned through Forum for the Future, and, and you know, we, ha we have the privilege of working with a lot of companies yeah. right on the cutting edge of leadership in corporate sustainability. So we see the best of what the corporate sector is doing. But the one thing we've learned is that however good they are at that, they can't change the rules of the game. They can't oh. do that. Only governments can do that. Okay. And if you think, for instance, about the fiduciary duties that companies still have to maximize profits for their shareholders, if you think about the difficulties they face sometimes when regulation makes it harder for them to do what they need to do rather than easier for them to do what they need to do. If you think about the ways in which our economy militates against more sustainable outcomes, companies on their own can't change that. It's only governments with a democratic mandate that can change the rules of the game. And for me, this is now a very clear moment, inflection moment in the history of corporate sustainability. Because companies have got to recognize that they may want to do more, but they're not going to until the rules of the game are changed. 
And that means companies have to raise their voice much louder and much more clearly, as we were just discussing with climate change, to persuade governments that sustainable prosperity depends on better regulation, better standard setting, a real understanding of how markets work efficiently, including, of course, all the damage done through what are called externalities, environmental and social externalities, the cost of which are not on companies' P&L. That's the problem. So they've got to work much more cannily, smartly, with regulators, um, with, with governments around the world to get that change which is so necessary. It's a funny symbiotic or dangerously symbiotic relationship between politicians and business, isn't it? Uh, and I, I agree with everything you say, but are those politicians going to put those regulations in if one bit of business is lobbying against it? Or, or is it that you feel that this is the moment where business is actually going to influence politics in a way that says, I know you're going to do this, and I know you're going to give me a bit of stick, but I, I'm happy to do it because I can see where, where the, the end game is. That's the thing I think I'm struggling to understand who, you know, you can have as much regulation as possible, but businesses, as you said earlier, lobby against and strongly say, to, oh, wait, don't, you're not going to get my vote. Yeah. Don't do this. How, how is that? Well, politicians, politicians always weigh these things in terms of the number of votes that it's going to win through doing something and the number of votes it's going to lose through doing something. I mean, it's, it's a, a crude old business is politics when you think about it. And my sense is if the politicians understand that voters, citizens now, are demanding that we should organize our economy in such a way as not to trash the environment, not to create massive waste problems like plastics in the oceans, not to see the world on fire as a consequence of climate change. If citizens are saying loud enough and clearly enough to their elected politicians, this is no longer acceptable. This is not an acceptable price to pay for progress, then the politicians will get their heads together. My sense of it is, however, that they won't do that without a lot more pressure coming from us, from citizens. And that's why I'm particularly interested in the role of young people. I believe that that's going to be the game-changing element here. I think a lot of young people at the end of 2019, it's been a tricky year for them with the pandemic in 2020, but the end of 2019, a lot of young people have come to the conclusion that politicians in power today were never going to do enough to protect their future. And that's what caused them to go on strike, caused them to become climate activists, to accept the need for nonviolent direct action. And personally, we need a, a several years of youth-led climate activism, which will make it impossible for the politicians to go on moving as slowly and inadequately as they are today. Do you think the youth are rebellious? Could you look back and I, I find them very placid compared to previous generations <laughs> uh, you know i mean they, they they don't certainly compared to my generation at uni we were on marches we were drinking a lot more than this lot do they seem to be very different but they're organized in a cyberspace way where they're more interconnected yeah do you think they have that in them now that because let's be honest if we're talking simply in terms of business they are the consumers what they, they in the yeah. future is what's going to make those P&Ls look good for the companies that are trading today. I think, think a lot of smart companies think all the time about their 
consumers, of customers of the future. And they're very aware that attitudes have changed significantly amongst young people. Um, they don't have the same overwhelming urge to consume that the generation before them did. And for me, if I think about, for instance, the way a company like Unilever is looking at this, they track what young people are feeling all around the world very carefully. And there is absolutely no doubt in terms of the consumer insights they have that their customers of the future are going to be demanding far higher standards on environmental and social issues. And that is a kind of win-win for improved corporate performance because they can see that it's going to weigh more heavily in terms of market share in the future and actually allows them to do what otherwise they might have put off until a, you know, a more distant time. So maybe it's not just radicalism that we're talking about here, but it's changed perception of what really matters to young people as they consume. It's different values, what they expect of companies today. And it's a growing appreciation that their future is at risk because of our failure to act appropriately. And that will grow and grow. Your latest book basically gives us a decade. You say we've got 10 years to save the planet in your book. Two things I want to know. Why do you write the book now? And why do you say this decade is so important? I wrote um, Hope in Hell because of my engagement with a lot of young people's organizations in 2019. Right. And I was on the receiving end, quite properly, of a lot of their indignation and anger. I mean, I may. What do they bang- accuse you of? Not acting enough? Well, just my generation, our failure to understand the, the nature of, of the changes we should have introduced. And that anger is wholly legitimate. So I wasn't, I wasn't disagreeing with them. I think it's very appropriate. And as I said, I'm very involved in higher education. I spent quite a lot of time talking to, to students about this. And it was their sense of injustice that caused me to write the book, really, because we have procrastinated for so long that their futures are, are now at risk. There's no question about that. The 10-year frame is really interesting. It isn't that we have to get everything sorted by 2030. But we do have to have put in place those reforms which will allow us then progressively to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases from 2030 onwards. And that's to get to a net zero position, uh, in my opinion, not by 2050, because 2050 is far too late to avoid um, increases in temperature that will be even more threatening to humankind. For me, it's uh, 2040 at the latest that we have to get to a net zero position. So 20 years from now. So everything we do between now and 2030 will essentially determine the success that we have up until 2040 and 2050. And all the more important now, because of course, governments around the world are trying to rebuild their economies after the pandemic, trillions of dollars. I think the latest estimate was something like $12 trillion is going to be invested in recovery programs of one kind or another. Now, if all those dollars flow into doing sensible things that help us address climate change and big environmental crises, then that is a massive support, a massive help in terms of the 2030 date. If those trillions of dollars go the other way into really stupid stuff, propping up fossil fuel companies or carbon intensive businesses, whatever it might be, then honestly, the prospects for 2030 are not good. 
then my, my hope quotient is a little diminished, as it were, and hell becomes a little bit more fiery. <laughs> Let, let's just explore that. Two things I want to talk about. Um, there is a school of thought, which is, who gives a crap? Right? <laughs> that says the planet will recover we're almost like a virus on the planet and if you look at geological time it's been hotter it's been colder there have been ice caps they've gone away what we're talking about is quite selfishly how it affects us really our, our human lives and that leads to the question of how do we do this as a planet now is there a jonathan porritt in india and in china is there one sitting in sub-saharan africa and would their voices be heard because le legitimately you could argue they want to get their people just out of poverty just getting a, a drink of water getting themselves to the state where they can actually function so i can see how this can really work in western democratized societies but how do you see this if we're going to do it globally how this happens from that grassroots feeling of, of society. I, it often comes as a surprise to people to know that concern about climate change is greater in countries like India and China than it is in the UK. Of course. And you realize suddenly that there, we take very patronizing views about what is going through the minds of decision makers in these countries who are already on the receiving end of massive dislocation because of climate conditions. So perceptions of self-interest look very different in the countries that are very vulnerable to these changes. And what they want is access to the kind of services that will make their lives better without the byproduct of their lives being at risk. So very simple story in India. Mm -hmm. Prime Minister Modi has one foot in the fossil fuel world because he is very beholden to India's very powerful coal companies. And he has one foot in the world of solar. Absolutely. Yeah. Happens to think that solar power is brilliant and that solar power is actually particularly good for the rural poor in India who have been promised grid-based electricity for the last 30 years. No prospect of getting it to many of those parts of rural India. Whereas large-scale decentralized solar is delivering massive improvements to the quality of life of some of India's poorest citizens. So no one is going to support a view that says people in India have got to stay poor so we can save the world. But how do we make those energy services available to people in a country like India? And we don't need coal any longer. I'm just a quick message from Mr. Modi. Forget your coal obsession because, frankly, solar and wind now would do it all for you over the course of the next 10 years if you weren't so beholden to those coal companies and i'm afraid that's where the politics kicks in as you know Sumit. absolutely what is your view on nuclear energy because if you look at it very simply if we crack fusion which we hopefully may well do maybe it's already happening you could say, if you look at the global profile of renewable energy assets, the amount of hydrocarbons that go into building a turbine, the amount of rare earth elements that go into building solar panels, that if you built modular reactors, if you got to fusion, you could offer clean energy for a lot of people around the world in a very quick way, and then use other technologies that are less harmful. Because I do, I do see this 
paradox where everyone says you've got to go renewable, but don't count the cost of going renewable in terms of the, the, the elements that will be taken out to create your solar power, your battery, your wind turbine. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, well, one has to do proper accounting for all of these technologies. There's no question about it. And some of those renewable technologies do indeed depend on things that have to be mined often in very uh, vulnerable and precarious countries. So the full life cycle has to be assessed. But I have to say that the opponents of renewable energy are very good at talking up that stuff. So some of them will argue, for instance, that a solar panel is so carbon intensive in its manufacture that it never actually pays back that investment in carbon terms throughout its lifetime. Utter rubbish, just for anyone who's interested. In fact, your carbon payback kicks in after about 18 months of an installed solar panel. So that's a slightly better equation. Nuclear, honestly, I, I, I'm amazed that this, this industry still thinks it has a case to make. I mean, it's been talking about next generation nuclear reactors for as long as I can remember. Fusion power has always been precisely 40 years away. It was when I joined the Green Party in 1974. You'll be surprised to assume it, it's now 30 years away. Well, hey, look, 30 years time, we're not going to be worrying about these things at all. Yeah. And for me, it's preposterous right. that this industry still lays claim to such political attention and demands public subsidy because nuclear is unbelievably expensive. And it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about big reactors or so-called small modular reactors. It is massively expensive. It can only be built with massive government subsidies at the cost of other sources of energy, which will be much cheaper, much more reliable, less dangerous, and create less waste that future generations will have to deal with. So for me, the nuclear industry is a complete scam. Um, they've got nothing to promise the world in terms of low carbon electricity. And sorry to make one final difficult political point. The only reason, we have, a <laughs> the only reason we have a nuclear civil industry here in the UK, because we've been one of the most incompetent countries in developing nuclear, the only reason we have a civil industry is because we, we are a military nuclear power. Absolutely. And in order to provide for the skills, human skills that they need to keep our nuclear deterrent capability going, we have to have a wider nuclear industry. There would be no justification for any further investment in any single kind of nuclear power in the UK were it not for the fact that we're still obsessed with keeping our seat at the high table by being a nuclear power. I want to end with um, ego, the term ego. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of what you've described is ego. It's ego of politicians, it's ego of businesses. And it is hard to put ego away, isn't it? It's the human condition. I, I want that house, I want a bigger house. I want a car, I want a bigger car. I, I want a water pump, and then I want an air conditioning unit. I want a mosquito net, and I want a a house how do we deal with that because it is our right as humans to want to better ourselves but we always seem to better ourselves at the cost of the environment we're in we, from chopping down trees or you know whatever mm. we did thousands of years ago um it's just there's a lot more of us now and that's the problem do you think we can get to where we want to be because i wonder whether we have the ability to look at really, hang on, let's just stop and look what we're doing. Do I need to do that? Mm. 
it all comes down to that question is um, what you make of human nature basically and I am one of those that is still persuaded that human beings are naturally responsible caring want to do the right thing do not want to make life worse for other people and deeply concerned about the future seen through the eyes of their children or the next generation whatever it might be and that for me is the starting point of what human nature looks like but if you then promote a particularly aggressive form of consumption driven yeah. status mm. where aspiration is all about more of this or more of that or whatever it might be then human nature can often look very different and if you promote greed you end up with human beings who are muddled about what their responsibilities might be as people so i think we have a lot to blame our consumer culture for when it comes to thinking about what people really want i'm confident that once we have the right sense of what we need to do now to secure sustainable economies on this planet for all of humankind i'm confident that people will respond to the challenge that that offers and to the opportunity to live differently to live less frenetically less driven by these mad waves of consumer frenzy fear of missing out psychological nightmares all of that kind of stuff um, so i'm i'm definitely upbeat about that it all comes back to how our politicians shape the context in which people see what progress really looks like and my final question can this be done with the political system we have at present you know, you talk about nonviolent protests, you talk about, some people talk about creating a global body that sits above the UN to regulate the biosphere. Others are talking about, you know, you get packs of nations working together. Can we do it with what we've got now, Jonathan? Do you think- It's tricky. It is tricky. I mean, it's bad enough trying to make this stuff work through more or less functioning democracies. Um, when you look around the world and you look at the number of populist, autocratic, tyrant based systems yeah. that we have whoa that gets a great deal harder and many of these democracies i mean brazil still a democ democracy the united states still notionally a democracy but these are countries that are hugely hostile mm -hmm. to the notion of building a sustainable future for the whole of humankind so it is really tough and that is why in the book in hope in hell i do not shy away from that this is all about politics it's not a technology issue we have all the technology we need to deliver a really brilliant world for people by 2050. It's not a money issue. We have plenty of capital to invest in these solutions. It all comes down to the politics. And that means ultimately, it all comes down to us as individual citizens to sort out those politicians. Do you have hope? <laughs> I do. I do. I, I genuinely, I, I do have hope. I, I don't describe myself as an optimist because I think optimism, when you look around the world, there's not yeah. much justification not much. for optimism, but I do have hope that before it gets too late, we can do what we need to do to avoid it getting terminally too late. And that's the thing. It's going to, it is, I'm afraid, going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And as long as it gets a lot worse quick enough, then I think we can still move things around. <laughs> Is that hope? 
It's a yeah. weird cope, but look, it's the best I think I can It's a fairly realistic cope, I think. <laughs> Jonathan Porritt, thank you so much for joining us on Future Net Zero. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Nice to talk. Thank you for listening to Gaia Says No. In our next episode, our regular guests will be discussing the role religion plays and could play in reaching net zero. Don't forget to subscribe. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.